This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Kingdom Story Company's I Still Believe. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe, rated PG, parental guidance suggested, in theaters March 13th. More information is available at istillbelievemovie.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Well, in just a few weeks, on April 17th and 18th, we will be holding our second annual God's Voice Conference. Now, you might remember that our first God's Voice Conference last year was focused on a biblical response to LGBTQ plus Christianity. And this was a rallying cry against the encroachment of gay activism into conservative evangelical churches through the heretical Revoice Conference. This year, though, we're offering what we regard as an equally important subject for the church to address as we present a biblical response response to LGBTQ plus tyranny. I think it goes without saying at this point that the church is under increasing pressure by sexual radicals to not only accept homosexuality and transgenderism, but to be forced to celebrate it in everything from weddings to speech to adoption and foster care. But one of the most egregious areas of tyranny has proven to be in the fight to ban therapy for people with unwanted same-sex attraction. And that is a subject that will be ably addressed at God's Voice by my next guest, Christopher Doyle. He is a licensed psychotherapist and leader in the therapy equality movement with the National Task Force for Therapy Equality. He is the author of The War on Psychotherapy, and he will be presenting an address at our conference called The War on Therapy, When Sexual Politics, Gender Ideology, and Mental Health Collide. In addition, he'll be offering a breakout session called Healing the Family, Help for Parents with LGBTQ Plus Identified Children. And by the way, you can go now to godsvoice.us to register. Get your early bird discount. It's only available through March 16th. So go to godsvoice.us. And it's wonderful to welcome you back to the show, Christopher. So excited to have you here. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, thank you. You've got a lot on your plate, I know, at our upcoming conference. We're delighted that you're going to be presenting this. But bring us up to speed, if you would, on the war on therapy. What is the latest? We know a lot of states have banned therapy, talk therapy for people with unwanted same-sex attraction. But where do things stand right now? Well, it seems like every day there is a new ordinance or law being passed by LGBT activists uh, to take away the rights of those who do not identify as LGBT and seek a different path. That, of course, you know, was my story. Um, For 15 years, I experienced and struggled with same-sex attractions. And uh, God uh, did a miraculous healing in my life. Uh, Today, I'm married to my wonderful wife, Sherry. We have five beautiful kids and Mm -hmm. For the last 10 years, I have been walking along with individuals who experience conflicts with their sexual and gender identity, and uh, it's been a journey for me personally and professionally, and I've helped hundreds of people and their families be able to make decisions that are in line with their values, and that's why I went into this work. I wanted to help people resolve those conflicts, especially Christians who thought that there was no hope or answers for them, and um, as you mentioned about these uh, bans that are affecting um, really localities all over the United States. Uh, Just yesterday, actually, uh, the governor of Virginia signed uh, into law the quote-unquote conversion therapy ban, (laughs) making it the 20th state to ban these efforts for minors. Wow. 
Virginia joins Maryland and Washington, D.C. So all around me, um, in both jurisdictions that I'm licensed professional counselor, it is now illegal to help a minor who wants to come out of homosexuality or gender identity conflicts. And um, I'm still in the process of uh, fighting uh, a federal lawsuit in uh, in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals that's going to be heard hopefully in the next couple of months to try to overturn this ban in Maryland. And eventually, if that happens, the Virginia law will also be overturned because it's in the same circuit court. Wow, it's incredible. Talk a little bit, if you would, about this term conversion therapy. They love to mischaracterize what people like you do and other counselors around the country who are simply trying to help your your clients meet their own goals. Can you talk a little bit about how they use the power of language and twisted words to advance their agenda? Absolutely. It's a strategic objective of the LGBT political activists to confuse terminology in order to paint those who offer an ethical service to those who are struggling as something that not only is what they say um, ineffective, but in fact, torture and harmful. And I, I really describe this in detail in my book, The War on Psychotherapy, on the different strategies they use to do this. One of the, the, the main strategies they use is ven- inventing this term conversion therapy, which is an umbrella term they use to describe any efforts, whether it is as simple as a self-help book or a conference at a church, such as God's Voice, or um, a religious counselor who's not licensed, or a licensed professional counselor, or a medical doctor who may be trying to consult with someone who's struggling with these issues, maybe has depression, anxiety, and is seeking medication. So all of these categories are lumped into one single category of conversion therapy. And then they use these different stories interchangeably at will in order to describe a practice that simply doesn't exist. They Hmm. say any effort by these professionals or religious leaders to help someone who has unwanted same-sex attractions or gender identity conflicts is conversion therapy. And of course, we know that no one in our field whether the religious or licensed professional counselor like me uses that term. And the work that we do is quite diverse. Some people like myself focus on healing trauma and doing uh, different types of psychotherapy, while religious or faith counselors might work on the spiritual aspects of homosexuality and help support a client through that journey. So um, it's a strategy they use, Janet, to basically confuse and to jam all these into one in order to achieve their political efforts. Well, you're right about that because you hear some of these testimonies that are given, for example, on the state level. I remember talking, I think it was to Ann Polk, talking about what went on in California or Washington. I can't remember which it was. And and they would have people come in um, and, and testify, oh, I was greatly, greatly harmed by this therapy therapist who, you know, zapped me with (laughs) electrodes and, you know, dunked me in a dunk tank and all the rest. And then, you know, they'd go over to this person and say, who did this to you? Because we certainly don't want anybody to abuse you in this way. Give us the name of the psychotherapist. Oh, got to go. You know, there was never any name that was given. Is that a pretty common thing that you've discovered that there are just wild stories being told without any verification whatsoever? In my book, The War on Psychotherapy, I actually document how this happens um, with with key people that are involved in the movement to ban therapy. Some of their most major spokesmen, spokespersons have uh, told these outlandish stories of being electroshocked, and we've asked them for documentation and evidence of this because 
if this is truly happening, I would be the first person to say that person's license needs to be revoked, and possibly they might be able to be prosecuted under abuse, under laws of abuse. Right. But um, we, of course, know that these stories either didn't happen the way that the person is saying that it happened, or they just simply don't exist at all. And I've covered it in my book. I've uncovered it while testifying in front of state legislatures. Um, the problem that we have is that for most of these politicians out there, the facts simply do not matter anymore. This is a political agenda. It's not based on fact and reason. It's based purely on emotion and political correctness. And for anyone to say that an individual, minor adult, might be helped by some sort of counseling to resolve homosexual or transgender feelings. Well, that is the greatest of all evils. It must be torture. It must be unethical. How dare you think that? (laughs) And you know what? There's thousands, if not more, people like me out there that have greatly benefited from professional help and are helping others in turn, and our voices deserve to be heard. Well, I agree with you there. And and as the executive director of the Institute for Healthy Families, how many people would you estimate have benefited from being able to have this kind of talk therapy? From my practice, hundreds of families and hundreds of individuals. I've been practicing for 10 years. 65 65 to 70% of my 40 plus weekly clients I'm in therapy with or for these issues. I've worked with hundreds of families. In fact, uh, just this week, we launched a new website for my family therapy model called Healing the Family. If you can go, you can access it at healing-the-family.org. And I discuss in detail, and in fact, I show a, a real video of a client that underwent therapy with us and, the, and his family. I love it. On that website of, of what lo- family therapy looks like. And Yeah, get- tell you what, Christopher, let's pause a moment. We've got to run to a break. We'll come right back with Christopher Doyle. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Nearly one in four pregnancies in America will end in abortion. The Ministry of Preborn provides free ultrasounds for abortion-minded women nationwide. When a mother sees her baby on an ultrasound and hears the baby's heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life. Here's the story of a mom who went to one of Preborn centers and met the baby she had planned to abort. They took me to the back and they introduced me to my child for the first time through an ultrasound. I was able to see this life growing inside of me, hear the heartbeat, and nothing else mattered at that point. I was a mother to be. Your gift of $140 will cover the cost of five ultrasounds. All donations are tax deductible. You can help save a baby's life by donating to Preborn. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own 
doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information. LibertyHealthShare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, one of the many reasons you ought to come to our God's Voice Conference, second annual God's Voice Conference in the Oklahoma City area on April 17th and 18th is to hear the gentleman I am talking to right now, Christopher Doyle. He is a licensed psychotherapist and executive director of the Institute for Healthy Families. His book is called The War on Psychotherapy, and he has been a leader on the issue of trying to fight back against these therapy bans that have taken place. I think you said, Christopher, 20 states now have passed these therapy bans. Kind of raising this question, why the bans and not regulation? If there really is, and and we know, you know, the lies that go on, but if there really is some sort of trend of therapists harming clients, and that can be actually documented, then why don't the states take the less invasive approach of regulating the bad, bad people and allowing autonomy for the good therapists whom a lot of people want to go to to help resolve their same sex attraction? Well, some states have actually passed some regulations. In fact, Virginia, which is a state that I'm licensed in, passed a regulation earlier this, well, actually in 2019. Um, but you're, you're correct. There are very far less um, states that have passed regulations than, than, um, than actually passed legislation. And my opinion is that it's, it's actually easier in this climate to pass political legislation because this is more of a political issue. When you actually look at the facts... And you look at the documented, you know, the lack of documented harm for those who have act, who've gone through any sort of therapy to resolve same-sex attractions and gender identity issues. There is none. There's none. And so when we, when we actually look at those facts, um, we can make a pretty good case that therapy should be ethical and legal and that we should keep ethical and legal therapy alive. And sure, we can regulate unethical uh, therapy that's harmful. But, um, you know, the the activists don't want to do that. They would rather solve this with cheap political solutions that really don't help anybody. Because what happens is, is that, um, let's say they, they, they pass a law. It's very, it's, it's actually very easy because it's a political solution to change the type of therapy that you do or change the, what you call it and so forth to get around a political law. The problem is that it paints a picture in the minds of people like clients that are trying to get help that they can't get help because this is illegal. Well, it's not legal because in my therapy, honestly, I'm not changing anything. I don't change sexuality. Sexuality changes the byproduct of doing really good trauma therapy. But what's really happening here is that the client who is struggling doesn't understand that he or she can get therapy because they believe that this has been illegal or banned. And so they are being discouraged and they're simply more and more are simply going and adopting a gay identity or Mm. or LGBT identity because they feel like there's no hope for them and they can't get any help. 
Right. And and yet there are so many people like you who have said, I've benefited from this therapy. The thing that frustrates me on some level, Christopher, is the fact that there are a lot of Christians who will reject psychotherapy just for, you know, theological reasons. And I've been trying to say for a number of years, listen, even if you reject psychotherapy, which obviously you can make a case in some some regard to why a Christian might have a little bit of problem with this or that, fine. But on the other hand, there's autonomy, right? We're Americans. We have freedom in the United States of America to pursue, you know, happiness. And this is what really troubles me is that this is affecting autonomy. Is this not something that also will carry over to biblical counseling once they ban therapy involving psychotherapy? Aren't Christians and churches next with biblical counseling? You're absolutely correct. And this is a great issue that I bring up in audiences where perhaps psychotherapy is not accepted. And I and I offer Christian integrated counseling. I mean, we call it psychotherapy, but yes. I'm a Christian. I have Christian values. I, I blend psych, psychology into the therapy and the counseling that I do. And this is a mainstream practice for most Christian counselors out there. Right. But just to answer your question, yes. So the, the problem with um, perhaps Christians or churches um, opposing therapy is that the way that these laws are written it's not actually banning a specific type of therapy. It's banning the goal of the client. Mm. So even if a client goes into a church or a faith-based counseling center and the counselor is licensed, but they offer biblical or Christian counseling, not so-called conversion therapy, whatever you want to call it, that is still illegal, whether or not the client is getting religious counseling or secular counseling. And that's why it's very unwise for organizations like the Southern Baptist Convention to come out and, you know, oppose reparative therapy because really they're cutting off their nose to spite their face when they do that. Right, right. Well, that's very interesting. That kind of changes the whole landscape, doesn't it? When you explain that to people, that in fact the goal of the client is what is being outlawed, not the specific type of therapy. That That's huge. Yeah, and if you look at all the laws, that's that's what's being outlawed. It's not the type of therapy, it's the goal of the client. No client can have a goal that's under 18 to change or diminish their unwanted same-sex attractions or gender identity confusion. It never says you can't do this therapy or that therapy. It's the goal. And, of course, when I explain to people, listen, I don't change sexuality. Sexuality might change as a byproduct of the client's work. But the client doesn't understand that in the general public. They think, oh, my gosh, I can't go get help because this is illegal. It's banned. And so this is a PR battle that we're fighting, right, against the LGBT actives who, who would, you know, who basically every, every major media outlet on the back of their pocket, you know, and, and are able to publish op-eds of the New York Times at, at a whim, you know, we can't get, we can't get our material published. It's not going to happen. So, yes, <laughs> so right. we try to get that message out, but it's very difficult. Well, that's why we're here for you. We love getting your message Thank out, you. Christopher. You're, you've got a wonderful message. And as I've been Thank remarking... You. Now, now you need to be on Fox News. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I don't know if they'd have me either. So who knows what's what's going on these days. But I'm so glad, you know, Christopher is going to be speaking on this subject, the War on Therapy at God's Voice Conference coming up April 17th and 18th. You need to register. Take advantage of our early bird rates by going to godsvoice.us. You have to be there. Now, 
Now, Christopher, you'll also be doing a breakout session for us on Healing the Family. And you mentioned you have a website by that name as well. Healing the Family, Help for Parents with LGBTQ Plus Identified Children. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because there are so many families, even Christian families, who are really brokenhearted because they may have a son or a daughter come home and say, I'm gay or I feel like I'm in the wrong body and I'm transgender and you should support my transition. What are some of the important things that families need to know when they're dealing with that kind of a circumstance? Well, thanks for mentioning that. And um, yeah, people can go onto the website at healing-the-family.org. And, you know, what I talk about in my family therapy model, and it's called Healing the Family, is that I work with a substantial amount of families and parents and minors who are struggling with these issues. And the individuals that I work with that are minors are really all across the LGBTQ spectrum. I don't just work with those who have a goal to change their sexuality or so forth. I work with a lot of trans and gay and lesbian identified minors, and I work with their families, and I try to help them understand that trying to change their child is not an effective goal for therapy. And what I explain is that so often, in pretty much every case that I have, there are dysfunctional and emotionally unhealthy family dynamics occurring in the home. And so what I, what I use is family systems therapy, and I've adopted um, a protocol that I developed over many years, and I published this in a 2018 journal article on the issues of law and medicine, and I describe how I use family systems therapy to help shift the focus from changing the child to healing the family. Hmm. And whenever we heal the dysfunctional aspects, dysfunctional, emotional, relational aspects of the family, relationships improve. Emotional health within the client, the child, improves. And yes, that in turn can affect the child's sexuality. It can affect lots of changes within those relationships that the child has that are dysfunctional and possibly causing sexual and gender identity conflict. So my, my uh, view of this is that in order to really do comprehensive treatment, we have to treat the whole family because the family is influencing some of these sexual and gender identity conflicts. Now, this isn't something where I take a child and we go into the home and we start talking about their sexuality. That's not the point, right? The, the, the sexual conflict or the gender identity conflict is the symptom. It's not the problem. Wow. The problem is in the unhealthy family dynamics, and that's what we do in family systems therapy. We heal relationships. We heal family dynamics. We work on boundaries. We teach parents how to unconditionally love, and also, a lot of times, we work on unhealthy marriages between mom and dad, uh, because that is one of the roots of why some people might circle with these issues. I know it wasn't my case and many of my clients. Wow. That is important to have that broader view. Is it the case that a lot of your clients also struggle with past sexual abuse? How prevalent is that problem? It's prevalent, but um, in my experience, that is actually occurring less and less. It used to be that about 50% of my clients experienced sexual abuse. Those numbers are actually declining in my practice um, because what's happening is I, I see primarily clients that are coming at this, they, they have trauma but it's usually attachment trauma mm. and meaning that they're not successfully attaching to the same sex parent and peers growing up. And whenever they, and a lot of times these clients, especially my gender dysphoria clients, and this is the fastest growing population that I'm seeing in my practice right now. I have a lot of young women that their parents are, are bringing them into therapy and they're, uh, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old. And 
these girls are late bloomers. They have been, they haven't, they're not, you know, at the same level as their peers who have already developed. And they're very wounded. They don't feel like they can measure up. They look at, they look at TV and the internet and they say, this is not me. And so they have these attachment problems and they have these, these cultural wounds that, that are all affecting the way they view themselves. And before you know it, rather than say, okay, I just need to develop and I need to work through my identity issues. They're going online and saying, oh, I'm really a transgender person oh. and I just need to stop going through puberty yeah. so that I can, so that I don't have to face these, you know, what we would call, we used to call the awkward years. Yeah, right? exactly. Well, you know, it's um, interesting, Christopher, all this stuff is so important. It's why you need to come to God's Voice Conference and hear more from Christopher Doyle from the Institute for Healthy Families. Go to godsvoice.us, register today. Christopher, thank you so much. It was wonderful to talk to you again. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. All right. God bless you. We'll see you soon. We'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Kingdom Story Company's I Still Believe. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe, rated PG, parental guidance suggested, in theaters March 13th. More information is available at istillbelievemovie.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Colossians 2.8 warns, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Well, in today's church, we are facing all kinds of spiritual and political and social deception, everything from the social justice movement to universalism to the cults. And those are just some of the issues that will be addressed March 27th and 28th at the 2020 Engage Conference of the International Society of Christian Apologetics. It will take place at New Hope Community Church in Palatine, Illinois, one of the northwest suburbs of Chicago. And we're going to be finding out more about it now from Dr. Bill Roach, who is president of the International Society of Christian Apologetics. Welcome, Bill. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. It's great to be on your show. We are really looking forward to our conference, and we're thankful to be on here and to engage this topic. Well, terrific. Well, I know this conference is about comparing and contrasting sound biblical teaching with some of the false teaching that's invading the church and the culture. Tell me what you consider some to, to be some of the most concerning false teaching that the church is facing right now that you will be addressing at the conference? At this conference, we are going to address two primary false teachings. You know, the first one is this whole woke social justice critical theory movement. And the second thing is the Enneagram, which is really a new age approach that people are using to connect with God in some way, shape or form, so they think. And we see both of them as eroding both evangelical identity and consistency. So what we're trying to do is defend the historic gospel against these onslaughts that are coming both from outside the church and inside the church. Well, these are really important subjects. I want to go to number two first, because I want to delve into number one in a little bit more detail. But when you talk about the Enneagram, one of the things I've noticed sometimes, I'm sure you've noticed this as well, Bill. For example, when you go on Twitter, I have seen more and more professing Christians putting an Enneagram reference on their Twitter bio. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? Can you explain to people a little bit about what this even is? Because probably a lot of listeners have never even heard of it. 
The Enneagram is really a means by which people can, they think, chart their identity and their different linkings towards God. You know, a lot of churches are going and using this approach. A lot of Christian schools are using this approach, and they're kind of marketing it as this personality test that you can take. And while it is a type of personality test, it goes much beyond just a personality test. It's a new age means of understanding who you are, how you connect with God, how one can relate with God and know God. So in that sense, it's denying the fundamental teaching of Scripture that we have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now we can have these other avenues, which are contrary to the biblical teaching and contrary to the Christian worldview. Good grief. How did this become widespread, and why do you think it's so popular in churches? This seems to be pretty much a no-brainer. If something has New Age roots, we should stay away from it. We should be only getting what we believe from the Word of God. But how popular is this in the church? Well, it's popular all over the place. You know, there's a lot of churches get, that get on this bandwagon of trying to be seeker-sensitive and trying to relate with the culture. And as it's been said, tell me what the world is saying today, and I'll tell you what the church will be saying seven years from now. <laughs> right. And that's exactly what's going on here. Is churches are trying to amp up their Sunday school classes, not by the Bible and the Bible alone, but by the Bible plus the Enneagram or some other means. And each way is really just a compromise of the sole sufficiency of Scripture as our foundation for faith and practice. Well, that's a really important point, because when we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, that's one important truth. But the sufficiency of Scripture, it seems to me, Bill, is becoming a bigger and bigger issue all of the, t- of the time, because it's easy to say, I have a doctrinal statement by which I am affirming the inerrancy of Scripture. But if you're not living as if every word out of the mouth of God, are those are the words that we're living by, that's when you can fall into a trap where, whereby you're coming in and accepting all of these worldly philosophies. Would that be a fair thing to say that the sufficiency of Scripture is under increasing attack? You know, the, the sufficiency of Scripture has been under attack, you know, both in and outside of the evangelical movement for years now. Um, people are always trying to find the Bible plus something else. But when it's coming to these issues, In many ways, they're trying to say this idea that we don't have all the divine words necessary for faith and practice. Hmm. So they're looking to outside human words to sort of fill in the holes in which God has apparently not revealed himself adequately or clearly. And that's what we're facing both with the social justice movement and its ideology that it's bringing in with critical theory and with the Enneagram. We need the Bible plus something else. But again, we're not the first ones to face this. You know, coming out of the Reformation, we find this taking place where, yes, we have the Bible, yes, we have what the apostles have given us, but those words are not all the divine words that we need for faith and practice. What do we need to add to it? Well, Roman Catholicism said, you need tradition. Tradition is going to fill in the gaps of the doctrinal lapses that we we have. Come to Rome, we'll we'll answer your problem for you. But on the flip side of it, You know, some people deny that even divine words had any ability to give adequate faith and practice, and theological liberalism brought that in and said, no, let's let reason and reason alone be that by which we understand man's understanding in this world and our place in this world and how we ought to know God and 
our liberal doctrines and so forth. So the sufficiency is attacked from all angles. Yeah, that's really important. One of the things, uh, one of the addresses at your conference you'll be delivering is on the subject of critical epistemology, the draw and danger. Can you tell us a little bit about what you'll be tackling in that address? The issue that I'm going to tackle in that address is this idea of critical epistemology. And, you know, some people try to take this whole critical race theory and they start defining the critical and say that it's just Marxism. And they're right. It is this idea of sorting out people according to oppressors and the oppressed. But I want to go back even farther. And I really want to divide this uh, idea up to pre-Kantian and post-Kantian understandings of reality. Hmm. And, you know, prior to Kant, they would say things like this, that you have objects in reality and the mind conforms unto reality. It's like science. We're discovering that which is true. Mm -hmm. But after Kant, the mind is determining reality. And that's what the critical turn is. It's this idea of how do we sort out reality? But ultimately, we don't know reality in and of itself, but only as it appears unto me. And that's the, the whole key is the me factor can change. Is it according to me as modern man, or when we look at critical theory, is it me according to my race, my gender, my oppression, my intersectionality points, and so forth. So that's what critical theory is getting at. How do I determine that which is in the world according to my vantage point? Right. When you talk about Kant, though, what was it about Kant's thinking that made that distinction between pre-Kant and post-Kant on the issue of how the mind conforms to reality or how the mind determines reality? What did he add to the philosophical school of thought that, that created that distinction? Well, Kant's whole philosophy was known as the big Copernican revolution. And we know what Copernicus was all about. Is it the idea that Does the sun revolve around the earth, or does the earth revolve around the sun in that sense? And what they're saying in Kant's philosophy is, do do objects conform unto the mind, or does the mind conform unto objects? And Kant flipped that. Traditional philosophy has always said that we can have an objectivity, that we can know reality, that reality is something that can be absolute, and we can communicate it. But what Kant tried to do is he tried to say, No, reality in and of itself can't be known. We're left with this gulf between us and reality. So in many ways, we're trying to determine reality from our vantage points. But again, it's mere opinions and it's subjectivity through and through. So it's really a battle of objectivity versus subjectivity. Can we know reality or can we not know reality? Right. Well, it harkens back to the days of the judges, doesn't it, where the people were doing what was right in their own eyes. And what that creates is chaos and 58 genders and all the rest of the stuff that's being lobbed at us on a daily basis in American culture today. And I do want to get into more of what you'll be talking about at your upcoming conference, Bill, which is the subject of the woke and all of this identity politics movement that is all around us and affecting the church. We're we're going to come back in just a few minutes with Dr. Bill Roach, president of the Internet. National Society of Christian Apologetics. You're listening to Janet Meffer today.
Christians losing their businesses for not baking wedding cakes for homosexuals. Parents losing custody for not affirming their child's gender identity. Big tech censoring Christian books, videos, and social media posts. This isn't a dystopian nightmare. It's America in 2020. But what will God's people do to respond to the sexual radicals whose rising social and political power is threatening our religious freedom and our free speech? It's time for Christians to get informed about the looming threats that we're facing and learn how to respond as both salt and light. That's why I'd like to personally invite you to join me at our second annual God's Voice Conference, a biblical response to LGBTQ plus tyranny coming to Oklahoma City on April 17th and 18th. You'll hear from an unprecedented lineup of some of the leading Christian thinkers, pastors, pro-family activists, and medical and therapeutic experts who are fighting on the front lines of this battle and standing firmly on God's word in the face of growing LGBTQ plus opposition to Christianity. Let me tell you, there's nothing else like God's Voice Conference to get Christians ready to stand in this evil day. So I hope to see you at the God's Voice Conference and outreach of First Stone Ministries, April 17th and 18th in Oklahoma City. And take advantage of our early bird discount registration, only $85 through March 16th. So don't delay. Go to godsvoice.us. That's godsvoice.us and register for a conference unlike any other. Go to godsvoice.us and register now. What the church needs now is God's voice. From Kingdom Story Company comes I Still Believe. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe reminds us that amidst life storms, true hope can be found in Christ. He chose to walk into the fire with her. That's what love is. If one person's life is changed by what I go through, it will all be worth it. I Still Believe. Starring KJ Apa, Britt Robertson, Shania Twain, and Gary Sinise. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. In theaters March 13th. More information is at istillbelievemovie.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, this is very encouraging to hear about the upcoming conference in Palatine, Illinois, the 2020 Engage Conference. It's an apologetics conference addressing issues that are facing the church and our world from the International Society of Christian Apologetics, March 27th and 28th. Bill Roach, Dr. Bill Roach, who is the president of the International Society of Christian Apologetics, is with us. And can you give people a website, Bill, where they can get a little bit more information about the upcoming conference? If somebody's interested in coming to our conference, they can go to iscaapologetics.org. Again, that's I-S-C-A apologetics.org. And there you can find out more about our plenary speakers and all of the breakout sessions that are coming. In addition, if you go to that website and you type in Metford when you're getting ready to sign up for the conference, we're giving a special 20% discount to all of your listeners to your program. Wonderful. Well, that's terrific. So people can go to iscaapologetics.org, I-S-C-A apologetics.org for more information. We were talking earlier, Bill, about the emphasis that you'll be placing on these, you know, at your conference, one of which was the Enneagram, as we discussed, and also this woke movement. This is everywhere. I know one of your speakers will be a name well known to the audience that we're speaking to, Dr. Tom Askell, who has done such great work with the Founders Ministry in the Southern Baptist Convention. And he has been a real warrior when it comes to fighting this Resolution 9 that was passed at the Southern Baptist Convention. People will know this was the resolution that said that critical race theory can be used as an analytical tool in uh, making certain determinations. And, and Bible-believing Christians within the SBC have said, well, wait, hang on a second. Hang on a second. We shouldn't be using critical race theory as an analytical tool in 
the church. How would you counter that? How would you respond to that? Just with somebody who would come to you and say, why can't we use critical race theory as some kind of analytical tool in the church? Well, the reality is, is that, you know, people are portraying this as just a, a set of neutral tools that are out there, sort of like this, you know, way of this epistemic sort of screwdriver it's been described as. It's just this tool that's sitting over there, excluding its neutrality to people. Why can't you just pick it up and use it? But the problem is, is that it's not a neutral tool. Ideas not only have consequences, as Weaver taught us, they have origins, too. And the origins of this worldview are, again, they're post-Kantian, so you can't know objective reality, and they're rooted in cultural Marxism, yep. in which it starts to divide all of reality up according to the oppressed and the oppressor. And, you know, when I read my Bible, I don't see the Bible understanding and determining humanity in that way. It really determines us not as this idea of, am I oppressed or am I the oppressor, but am I in Adam or am I in Christ? Mm. Am I a fallen person who lacks salvation, or am I a person that already is in Christ and has received salvation? So what it's fundamentally trying to do is shift the locus of, the, of humanity's real problem away from sin and salvation to oppression and how are you fitting in your whole intersectionality grid in society? Oh, I think you're right. And I love what you just said. I think that's terrific. If, am I in Adam or am I in Christ? Am I still uh, in my fallen sinful nature, unforgiven and dead in my sins and transgressions? Or have I been born again into a living faith in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, that is the real distinction. And, and one of the things that it seems becomes problematic when people begin to pick up this critical race theory or this woke kind of, uh, you know, philosophy to try to apply to life is there never seems to be any forgiveness. In other words, it's with some of these people who are pushing critical race theory, it becomes you're white. There's nothing you can do about it. You're a permanent racist. You can never repent enough. You can never do enough to you know, atone for your sins or the sins of your ancestors. That is diametrically opposed to the word of God. What is salvation if not forgiveness of sin and redemption? Exactly. You know, there was a time when evangelicals thought that purgatory was about the worst thing that could be taught out on the streets. And we realized that, you know, when the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory <laughs> springs. Yes. And we think that if somebody can't work that off, if somebody can't do enough penance for their sins, well, we haven't looked at critical theory and woke theory enough because you can never get out of their purgatory. Never. You can never find the forgiveness of their sins. And we're left, you know, finding this mediator of their social sort of priests that we have out there, the woke social justice warriors who give us knowledge, tell us when we've been absolved. It's really a woeful thing that the church has bought into. I agree with you. And especially because Christianity is so superior to any sort of secondary philosophy that's popularized in the current culture. It's it's ridiculous. I You know, when you look at this effect that the woke movement is having on evangelicalism, Bill, what would you say are your greatest concerns just on how it is impacting Christians across the country and dividing churches and dividing denominations? I think really it's the divide that's starting, or that's starting to cause me the greatest concern. And it's doing exactly what it's set out to do. Critical theory is not here to unify people, but to divide people. And you look at this, we've had people go from a very practical standpoint, from having unified seminaries, unified denominations, 
unified churches, unified missions organizations, and now all of that's being flipped on top of its head right now. Right. And we see that most clearly in the Southern Baptist Convention, yep. where people are divided on this issue. There are people who are no longer speaking with one another because of this issue, and it's starting to really split churches. So I think it's really accomplishing what it's set out for, but it's denying the unity of the body of Christ. That's one of my biggest concerns well, on it a is practical a, level. Yeah, it, it is a huge concern. And I always say this on my show, you might not be a Southern Baptist, but what is happening in the Southern Baptist Convention is a harbinger of what might be happening in your denomination next, because that's the biggest evangelical denomination in the country. So we best be informed about this. Bill, talk a little bit, if you would, about some of your speakers. I had mentioned Dr. Tom Askell. You have some other great speakers as well. But, but what can people expect when they come to the conference? What people can expect from this conference is for us to address this topic at all the different levels one would like to see it addressed. You know, I'm going to address it from a philosophical perspective, since that's my background, and Tom Askell is going to look at it from more of a theological perspective, trying to understand how can we apply this biblically, theologically, as pastors and leaders within our churches. And then when you look at this, We also have two other people that are pastors in local churches, and we're going to look at this idea of how can a pastor in his church, and some of them are even black pastors, address this topic that is so divisive and really just mirroring the world right now so that we can rightly stand where the Bible calls for us to stand. Now, the one thing that's different is we also have uh, Marcia Montenegro, who is really just an expert on sort of the, the New Age movement. And yes. She's going to address Richard Rohr and this whole Enneagram movement. So we have four people dealing with critical theory and one dealing with the Enneagram. So we're really touching on these two hot-button topics of our culture from all levels, from a pastoral perspective, theological, and philosophical. That's wonderful. And you're right, Marsha is just terrific on the whole issue of the New Age. She'll do a great job as well. You have a lot of breakout sessions, and I know something else you'll be discussing are also the cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism. It's interesting because it doesn't seem the cults are discussed quite as much today as they may have been 10, 15 years ago. But this is this is also continuing to be important, isn't it, to make the distinction between historic biblical Christianity and and twisted versions of Christianity. Exactly. And it's ironic because there's really a a strong parallel between how the cults operate and how they define doctrine and exactly what's going on with this whole woke movement. Yes. Because what is a cult? Somebody that denies at least one essential of the Christian faith. And how do they operate? They're authoritarian. Yes. We have the knowledge. You got to come to us. We have the special insight. We're going to tell you how reality operates and how to interpret your Bible. And isn't that really what's going on with a lot of this woke movement? Oh, yeah. It's a shift in authority, and they're the ones that are going to tell us exactly how to interpret our Bible make up biblical doctrine and apply it to the local church. So they go hand in glove. I think that is a great comparison. And immediately what came into my mind was the Mormon who says, you can't talk me out of Joseph Smith's revelation because I have a burning in my bosom that this is true. And it's kind of like the woke saying, you haven't lived my experience, so you can't deny my reality. I mean, it almost takes it out of the realm of rational, reasonable conversation or the ability to persuade anybody out of their position because it's all based on experiential evidence, as it were, or lack thereof. But all of this is such important stuff, and I want to reference you one more time, refer you to 
ISCA, we'll do this, iscaapologetics.org. This is the International Society of Christian Apologetics website, iscaapologetics.org. You can get more information about the upcoming conference, March 27th and 28th in Palatine, Illinois. Well, Dr. Bill Roach, it was a delight to have you here. God bless you. Keep up the good work and thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Keep defending the faith. All right. My honor to have you here, Bill. God bless. And thanks again for being here today. Really appreciate you. Thank you, too, for being with us on Janet Mefford Today. Always a pleasure. We'll see you next time. This hour of Janet Mefford Today was brought to you by Kingdom Story Company's I Still Believe. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe, rated PG, parental guidance suggested, in theaters March 13th. More information is available at istillbelievemovie.com.